All right, so before we actually jump into Romans 9, I want to practice one of my favorite evangelistic approaches on you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like to get into discussions with people and just declare something to make a statement and tell them, okay, well, let me know when you disagree with me. So you guys this morning, I'm going to make several statements and I want you to let me know when you disagree with me. The first statement, cancer is bad. Second statement, all right, true and false. What do you mean, Joe? Okay, so there are benefits we can find in it. There are benefits to it and it teaches us. Anything else? It's awful. All right, so to some extent you agree with me. All right. I'm glad you don't know that firsthand. Amen. Good. It was right along the same. Yeah. Yep. Same thing. All right. It's good to get some clarification in there. Second statement pedophiles are sick. Why? Okay, another clarifying statement. That's good. All right. So Andy is wrong. <laughs> All right, third statement. There are two genders. Yeah, we're not going to go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's good that you guys are, are clarifying and um, amending these statements, because I could very well mean when I say cancer is bad, um, that therefore there is no good God, because God could not allow cancer, right? And so for you guys to, to clarify and say, well, there's good in it, there's purpose in it, um, that's a, a good thing. That's what we want to be doing apologetically, to be clarifying and making sure that we're on the same page. In the same sense, if I say pedophiles are sick, Andy to say, no, they're sinful, that's good too because in saying pedophiles are sick, I could just be saying, well, they are externally motivated by their environment. Their environment has um, so affected them that they go out and they do these sick things. It's affected their, their psyche and so therefore they're not culpable of these sinful, sick things that, that they do, right? Or if I say there are only two genders, I could mean something completely different. I could mean there are only two genders out of a, a plethora of, of many genders. Or there are only two genders that you have the, the freedom and the privilege to choose for yourself. You can choose one that's more masculine or more feminine. Um, or there are a number of different meanings that I could have personally behind that statement. And, and bad and sick, those are very... Uh, subjective terms and terms that our culture has actually taken and flipped upside down to mean good in in many ways uh, for people to say oh man that, that was bad or that's sick uh, has completely different meaning today than what it would have several decades ago yes uh, responsible that's not what I'm saying but other people could say that 
they are a product of their environment. That Well, they grew up in a really bad home. They had really bad uh, situation or mental disorders. And so because they go out and do these things, they're not responsible for what they do. And that's completely unbiblical, right? But a lot of people will make that argument. So that's why it's good to, to clarify and to make sure that we're on the same page when we're having these kind of conversations, to ask these clarifying questions. And this isn't a, an approach that I use because I'm so brilliant. This is an approach that I stole from Paul. Paul uses this all the time throughout Romans. And I want to go and um, look at how Paul has used this in Romans. Um, but before I do that, more of a, a positive way of how I would use this approach. I would use this approach to kind of do the same thing to, to draw out the differences that I might have with somebody else and to ask them questions, to get them to ask me questions. So I would say something along the lines of, well, I believe that God created us. And if they don't have any disagreements, then I'll, I'll push a little bit farther. I'll go a little bit further into that. And I'll say, well, I believe that not only has God created us, but he knows us. And not only does God know us, but he himself can be known. And in fact, he has made himself known through the Bible. And if at any point along this line of questioning, they have objections, and we'll stop and we'll discuss those. Um, and then we'll get into deeper and deeper theology. Well, I believe that there was a man named Jesus, and I believe that Jesus was perfect. I believe that Jesus was God, etc., etc. And again, the whole concept is to question them, to get them to question me so we can find out <clears throat> what is truth and where do we differ on the under, our understanding of truth. And so turn with me to, to Romans, and we'll see how Paul does this. He is very uh, polemical in his approach in asking questions, in anticipating objections. He is very lawyer-like. I like that about Paul. All right, uh, let's look at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 20. Romans 5:20. And Paul said, "The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign throughout through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." And then in verse one of chapter six, he starts questioning, anticipating these objections that people are going to have. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He says, may it never be, absolutely not. Uh, it's one of the strongest no's that he could say in the Greek. Meganoita, may it never be. How shall we, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Again, a, a question mark, trying to get them to, to think, trying to draw out these objections, trying to lead the, the flow of thought. Uh, let's look a little bit farther down in verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There's his statement, his declaration. Sin's not your master, you're under law, not under grace. Or not under law, but under grace. <laughs> Verse 15, what then, question mark, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Then again, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin resulting in death or to obedience resulting in righteousness? 
question mark. Don't you guys know this? That you're a slave to somebody, either to sin or to righteousness. Paul is questioning them, trying to lead their thinking and anticipate objections. Um, one more. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he's asking these questions, leading them, and he's saying, my personal experience, I didn't know about coveting until the law came. And so uh, the law is not sin. He uses the same uh, type of apologetic, the same reasoning, the same approach as he's writing all throughout chapter 9, 10, 11. We're going to see tons and tons of questions, not so much today or, or next week, but starting in verse 14 of chapter 9, there's question after question, the same type of approach. So it's good to, to recognize how Paul is uh, addressing these Romans as we're getting into these chapters in Romans. Another thing that I want to, to point out about Paul and what he's trying to communicate and trying to get across is his understanding and his declaration of the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. He's been uh, trying to draw this out from the very beginning, from chapter 1, and he's going to continue to do so again, most especially in chapters 9 through 11. So we need to go back a little bit and make sure that we have a firm understanding of where he's at and what he's been doing. So turn back to chapter 1 with me, and let's look at how Paul describes the relational differences between Jews and Gentiles. Starting back in verse 5 of chapter 1, he's talking about Jesus, our Lord, and he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So right off the bat, first few verses into the book, he's saying, we have been sent to, to preach this gospel, this truth about Jesus to all of the Gentiles. Um, then verses 14 through 16, same chapter. Paul says, I am under no, or I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So he's preaching to, to everybody. He's uh, sharing the gospel with everybody, non-discriminate of uh, where they came from, their nationality, anything. Verse 15, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then chapter 2. Could I get somebody to read for us from chapter 2, verses 25 through 29? 25 through 29. Who's got that? Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. 
All right. Do you guys notice the questions in that little section? He said, um, will not his circumcision be regarded as, his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then later, um, that you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Question. So he's again trying to draw out and get their thinking rolling. And how would you summarize what he's gone over in these five verses? What is he getting at? You're lost. <laughs> We're looking at chapter 2, 25 through 29, and Paul is talking about the, the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And what's he getting at in those verses? Okay, good. Yeah, it's drawn out the heart. It's not your, your external stuff. It's not whether or not you're, you're circumcised. Uh, it's the circumcision of the heart, right? And so he's saying that an unbelieving Jew is worse off than a believing Gentile. If you're a, a Gentile and you're, you're not circumcised, but your heart has been circumcised, you've been changed, and God has done a, a work within you, you are better off than the Jewish man who doesn't know Christ, who isn't regenerate, hasn't been changed, right? All right. Yes. But it would still just be partial obedience if their heart's not circumcised, right? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and he continues with that, that same thinking. Um, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, right after this. So remember, there are no chapter and verse divisions as Paul's writing and trying to communicate to these guys. So he just got done saying that, that uh, Jew who is one um, outwardly only, they are worse off than uh, a Gentile, somebody who's been changed inwardly. And so he poses this question, kind of speaking from the, the perspective of the person who'd be listening, trying to anticipate their objection. He says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? And now without going forward and, and reading the rest of that chapter, just from your guys' own memory, your own understanding, how would you answer that question? What is the benefit of the Jew then? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Jerry cheated because he's got an amazing memory. It is great in every respect. So, um, what respect? Um, let's let's pull that apart a little bit. How is it advantageous for a Jew, Andy? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, so in that respect, it would be good for the world, right, that he's using the Jews to do that. But obviously, in, in using them, they have access. They have uh, more, more time and understanding of that word that he has given to them to take out to the world. Jerry? All right, amen. So they have this revelation from God where God is revealing himself, and they have a better understanding of who God is. They have a better understanding of their sin, of their need for a Savior, and then they have these specific promises made to them as these Jewish people. And so Paul's going to go on. He's going to um, smash that objection that says, well, it doesn't matter if I'm a Jew then, right? There's no advantage whatsoever. And he picks it up in verse 2 of chapter 3. And this section here, the first eight verses of chapter 3, um, are kind of a, a shrunken out version of Romans chapter 9. So Romans chapter 9 is going to kind of come back to these thoughts and really dig in a lot more. So this is a, a zoomed out version. Will somebody read for us chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, please? All right. I didn't count all the questions in that section, but there are a lot. Hopefully, again, you're seeing that, that he's speaking from the perspective of those who would be throwing out objections to him, and then he's starting to, to counteract them. Once again, we're going to get into those a lot more in chapters 9 through 11. Um, but here he's saying the Jews have this special revelation from God. They have an understanding of who he is and an understanding they have violated the law that he has given to them. Uh, Douglas Moo says that Jewish Christians need to be assured that their faith in Christ does not mean they have ceased to believe in the God of the Old Testament and the Jewish heritage, but Gentile Christians must also see a connection between Old and New Testaments in the plan of salvation. They must see that their own faith has its roots sunk deeply into Old Testament soil. So Paul's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles and trying to draw out, well, uh, what are the, the distinctions? What's the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles? And he's been doing that all throughout Romans, and he's going to do that even more in these next three chapters. So um, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. Let's jump in at verse 4. So this is kind of picking up along the same lines, talking about the, the advantage that the Jew has 
um, just like he was doing in verse 1 of chapter 3. And so in verse 4 he says, These Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. So here he's drawing out a little bit what he was talking about, the oracles in chapter 3, and how they have an advantage over the, the Gentile. So um, the first thing that he mentions there, well, first we're reminded of Paul's Jewish heritage back in chapter 3, or verse 3 of chapter 9. He says that these are my kinsmen according to the flesh, these Israelites. Um, and we know that that Paul is a Jew, that Paul didn't take that Jewishness lightly. He says in Philippians 3 that he is a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. He was proud of his Jewish heritage, right? Um, unlike some Americans today are of our American heritage, right? Look back at the Olympics and how people wouldn't acknowledge the flag or whatever. That's not Paul at all. Paul is very proud to to be a Jew, and he's going to go on. He's going to talk about this benefit, the advantage that the Jews have, this blessing that the Jews have in their heritage of being Jews. And the first thing that he mentions in verse 4 is the adoption of sons, that they're blessed because they have the adoption of sons. And we're going to spend some time, we're going to go back and look in the Old Testament a little bit at how, in fact, they were adopted. Uh, could I get somebody to look up Exodus 4.22 for me, please? Who's got Exodus 4.22? All right, Jerry. And I'm going to head over to Deuteronomy 14. All right, whenever you got that, Jerry. Exodus 4.22. We're looking at how the Israelites were adopted as the sons of God. All right. And then Deuteronomy 14.1, he says that you are the sons of the Lord your God. And then again, Deuteronomy 7.6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's quite an advantage, right? To be chosen by God, to be his special chosen people, adopted as sons of God. That's certainly an advantage that the Jew has. And Paul here in Romans 9 is drawing that out, letting them know there is advantage in, in being a Jew. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says that it was a paradox, not to say a scandal, that the very nation which had been specifically prepared by God for this time of fulfillment, the nation which he could glory in so much unique which could glory in so much unique privilege of divine grace, the nation into which in due course the Messiah had been born should have failed to recognize him when he came, while men and women of other nations which had never enjoyed such privileges embraced the gospel eagerly the first time that they heard it. So there certainly is advantage to the Jews. that They had this special privilege. They were adopted as children, as sons of God, and yet... F.F. Uh, F. Bruce is pointing out the, the, the paradox and the scandal, the irony in that, that despite that, they have not chosen to embrace this God in 
large part. Uh, Israel is nationally chosen by God, uh, but this isn't speaking about individuals being chosen, though there are some individual Jews who are chosen, um, but it's speaking of the, the national election that God had for Israel and how they were, were set apart, how they were a, a nation that, as Andy said, was to bring the law and the gospel to the other nations. Um, any other thoughts or questions on Israel being adopted as the sons of God? All right. God has no national preference in view of salvation, but there is definitely national blessing and promises and privilege that Israel had over the, the Gentile nations. So moving on, the Israelites are those who are adopted as sons, and they also have the blessing of the glory in Romans 9, 4. What do you suppose is meant there, the blessing of glory? What is Paul getting at? Romans 9, 4. He says that they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory. How does the glory belong to Israel, to this nation of Israel? All right. <laughs> they had God dwelling among them. Remember how he was following them as a cloud in the wilderness. Yes. Yeah. And there were eyewitnesses to all these things. Mm -hmm. And the other nations, they didn't have this blessing. They didn't have this advantage. No other nation has seen God in his glory and had God's glory dwell among them like the Israelite people did. Um, like you mentioned in in the tabernacle and in the temple, God was there. His Shekinah glory was among them. One of my favorite passages of scriptures in First Samuel, um, in chapter four, it talks about how the the Ark of the Covenant was sent out. Remember, Israel got so caught up in themselves and they were so foolish and they thought, without consulting the Lord, we're just going to send this magical quote unquote Ark of the Covenant out in front of our warriors so that maybe they'll they'll win and they'll do well in battle <clears throat> and it was taken, it was captured in battle, and it was, that was Ichabod, right? The glory has departed Israel, and I don't know if you remember, but it was taken, I don't remember the nation, I should have looked this up before, but it was taken to, to some other nation, and it was sat, Philistines, all right, it was put in their temple, and um, right next to Dagon, this Philistine god, and overnight, Dagon had fallen over, and it was bowed down towards the Ark of the Covenant, and so they came in the next day and they picked up Dagon, their god that they had to physically pick up, right, and put him back up. And they left and that night the, the idol had fallen down again, his hands and his head had fallen and broken off and again was bowed down um, towards the direction of the Ark of the Covenant where Yahweh's glory resided. And then they just 
couldn't put up with all the, the curses that God was bringing upon them. Next chapter, chapter 6, talks about how they sent the, the ark back with uh, five golden tumors and five golden mice uh, as an offering of sorts, right? But this glory was for Israel and Israel alone. So the ark made its way back to Israel and uh, God's glory resided there in a special way. And then it continued to um, reside in the temple when the temple was built. In 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11, it says that it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud, that is the, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud and the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the Israelites had the blessing of the adoption of sons. They had the blessing of the glory of God residing upon them, witnessing the miraculous signs of God. And then the third thing that's mentioned in Romans 9, 4 is that they had uh, belonging to them the covenants. Um, and the covenants, think back to the Old Testament again. What are the covenants that are being referred to here? What Old Testament covenants do we know about that Israel had given to them? All right. God made a, a covenant with Abraham, right? Joseph, you mentioned the Ten Commandments. So the Mosaic covenant, that God made a covenant with Moses and with his people there in the desert, right? Any other covenants we can think about? Davidic, all right. The new covenant, all right. So we got the four big ones, Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the new covenant. Yeah, almost. <laughs> Joseph spoke up before Jim, but yeah, we got them chronological order. So let's look at those real briefly. Uh, will somebody look up Genesis 15, 18? Who's going to get that? Look at the Abrahamic covenant for us. All right, Jim. All right, and then Joseph, you can get the Mosaic, uh, Exodus 24, 7 through 8. And then Andy, it'll just be fitting if you get 2 Samuel 23, 3 through 5. And Jeremy, you can grab Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. These are those four covenants that are given to Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, 18. Yeah. All right. So God made that covenant, that promise with Abraham. We see, or Abram, the verse before, God was the only one who made that covenant. That was a, an unconditional covenant. God was the only one on the hook for that one. Um, yeah, Joseph. Yeah. So three aspects, land, seed, and blessing. Joseph. All right, so there we see the the tail end of that covenant. Um, but up until that, um, God was laying out the covenant, and that covenant 
uh, was not unconditional. That was a, a conditional covenant that was dependent upon Israel's cooperation with God and doing what he had said. He said, if you do this, then I'll do this. Whereas with the Abrahamic covenant, it was, I'm going to do this because I am God and I am faithful. It's not dependent upon anything that you do. All right, and this is a lot that we're going through in just a very summary fashion. Um, but if you guys are unfamiliar with the covenants of the Old Testament, it would be a, a good study for you to catch up on because there's tons of relevance in the New Testament. Andy, Second Samuel 23, 3 through 5. And God had initially made this covenant with David in chapter 7 of Second Samuel. This is just a reiteration of it that's a little bit more summarized. But chapter 7 of Second Samuel would be where you'd want to go to read that in full. So David there calls it an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things. Will he not indeed make his house grow? So that is a, a covenant that focuses on the fact that David will have a descendant who's going to reign as king in his place for eternity. All right, and then the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Good. That is the new covenant. Jen? 31 through 34. But all of 31 is really pertinent to the new covenant. And even going back into 30 a little bit. And Ezekiel 36, another chapter you'd want to get for that. And going into 37. So lots of new covenant uh, chapters and verses and relevance again to the, the New Testament. <clears throat> And who was the new covenant given to there in Jeremiah 31 that Jeremy read? Uh, it was for the Jew. Yeah. Yeah. The two divided nations within a nation. Yep. And it says in those verses that it's not like the covenant that he gave to, to Moses, the one that you read, the conditional covenant which they broke so in saying that he's saying this is an unconditional covenant it's going to happen again it's not dependent upon you god is saying that he's going to do it and it's dependent upon him and him alone all right um we can get stuck there for a long time but 
again, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and then connecting those, you can look at Romans 8, or not Romans 8, uh, Hebrews 8. We'll kind of tie that together and talk about how um, we as Gentiles are involved in that new covenant because it's very clearly in those Old Testament passages uh, being given to Israel. And so it's a, a bit of a mystery to try to figure out, well, what does that mean for us then? But that's a different study for a different time. All right. Um, back in Romans 9.4. So, again, talking about the advantage that the Jew has. Um, these Israelites, to whom belongs, one, the adoption of sons, the glory, talking about the glory of God, the covenants, all those different covenants, Abrahamic, Mes not Messianic, uh, Mosaic, um, the Davidic and the New Covenant. And next we see the giving of the law. That just goes back to the, the Mosaic Covenant. You can read about that more in Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. Um, I'm not going to do that for you. Um, and then just talking more about the, the giving of the law in Romans 7.14, Paul points out the fact that the law is spiritual. And so he's saying, just as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just about your outward expressions, what you do, right? It's not this external circumcision, but it really penetrates the heart. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you've heard it say you shall not commit adultery. I say if you lust within your heart, you've committed adultery. You've heard it say you shall not murder. I tell you if you hate within your heart, then you're guilty of murder. So the law is deeper than just external, but it's spiritual as well. Um, there towards the end of verse 4, he mentions temple service. In Exodus 29, 44, it says that I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And he took and departed, not departed, divided different um, ministries that people would have within the temple, how they would serve um, the Kohathites, they were the ones who were supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and um, different people were supposed to do different things to the service of the temple. And he mentions that as an advantage that they had. They were right there firsthand ministering amongst the temple. And then um, he mentions the promises. And then in verse 5, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ? And I'm going to kind of tie all those together. The promises, whom are the fathers and um, from whom came the Christ. These are all advantages that the Jews had. God had made these promises to them. They had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these other fathers that were uh, a blessing to them. And ultimately, Christ came from the, the Jewish uh, nation. So I want to read to you from Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. I'm kind of tying all these together. It says that, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, who is that prophet? Hmm? Moses is the one who's saying that God will raise up for you a prophet like me, right? <laughs> Who is a prophet that's going to be raised up like Moses? Jesus, right? So this is talking about Jesus. All right. He says, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward, so there we see all the fathers, right, um, also announced these days, 
And it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that Jeremy was talking about. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So there we see that aspect that we see in Romans 1.16, that the gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. That to fulfill these covenants that God had made to, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, that the gospel was coming for the Jew, but it was made available for, for everybody. Just as, again, um, Hebrews 8 is going to kind of open up and give us more understanding about the new covenant and how that was made to the, the Jew, but how we have a part in that. And we're going to get into that really deep in Romans 11, talking about how we have been grafted into this promise that God has made for the Jew. But right now, Paul's still focusing on uh, the Jews and this advantage that they have, the blessing that they have because of their national heritage. And then he closes out this verse, verse 5, by saying that this Christ who came according to the flesh is over all God blessed forever. And there are disagreements about how to render that last phrase, whether it should say that Christ is God over all or that Christ is blessed by God forever. And it gets really technical, but uh, most of the the better readings will say that Christ is God over all, who is blessed forever. So just note there's some disagreement there about how that verse should be rendered, but um, it's potentially a, a good verse to point out Jesus as God. Um, any questions there about all that, how the Jew had an advantage? Yes. Um, the significance of that because yeah because they still they haven't been or ever been written off um, that's a, an advantage that the Jew had then and the Jew still has today they're coming from a, a place where they have this heritage they have this blessing and advantage over the Gentile that the Gentiles don't have um, looking at a, a bigger picture of this section chapter Chapters 9 and 10 are both in the present tense, speaking about where Israel is presently. We get into the first part of 11, and it's talking about, um, or that's talking about the past and its effect on the present. First part of chapter 11 is going to talk about where they are presently, and then later in 11 is going to talk about the future of Israel and what we have to look forward for the future of Israel. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they, they currently possess those. Those are for them. Um, it's not something that has been either fulfilled or written off. And, yeah, we'll get into that shortly and throughout the next couple of weeks. Well, maybe. 
It's forever. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's why this section is even here. You might have noticed I kind of skipped to verse 4 and 5. Let's go back and talk about verses 1 through 3 real quick before the end. Um, but before we do that, let's tie in chapter 8. So remember that chapter 8, Paul ended on this really high note, right? He's really uh, optimistic, really excited about who we are in Christ and the, the great advantage that the believer has in Christ and how we have assurance of our salvation. Um, he kind of does the same thing here with all the, the questions drawing out. What shall we say then, starting in verse 31 of chapter 8, um, to these things? If God is for us, and who can be against us? He goes on, he says, who can separate us from the love of God? Well, short answer is nothing. Right? He goes through this long list and says, nothing can separate us from God's love. Then wrapping it up with verses 38 and 39, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, with Paul kind of leading and his uh, apologetic style trying to get people to think, um, he anticipates the Jews saying, well, what about us? How can we have security in God when we have all these promises, these covenants and stuff in the Old Testament, and they haven't been fulfilled yet, right? They don't have that, that land, and um, there are aspects maybe of the, the seed and the blessing. The seed, who is Christ, has come, but the blessing has not been there, and, and they're looking for these Old Testament promises and covenants that have yet to be fulfilled. And Paul's over here talking about the gospel being for the Gentiles, and so he's kind of um, addressing this, starting in verse 9, or chapter 9, from the advantage of the Jews, from the perspective of the Jews. Um, let me read um, Thomas Schreiner right here. He says, If God's promises to Israel have not come to fruition, then how can one be sure that the great promises made to the church in Romans 8 will be fulfilled? How could a righteous God transfer his promises from Israel to the church? Paul says that nothing will separate one from Christ's love and that those who are justified will be glorified. But God also chose Israel. And if his covenant promises to Israel were not realized, then how can one assert that they will be fulfilled in the church, for the church of God? And so Israel is kind of sitting there wondering, well, what about us, right? With all this talk about Gentiles and uh, where Paul seems to be taking this conversation. And so Paul, anticipating their thinking, um, starts off in chapter 9 by saying, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So he appeals both to Christ and the Holy Spirit to say, I'm telling the truth. And then verse 2 says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, that is quite a statement there, that he says he wishes that he himself could be separated for his kinsmen. He has such great love and care for these people that he would wish himself to be accursed for their sake. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, I think, uh, 
greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And Paul was willing to do that, not just on a temporal basis, but eternally. He says, if I could, I would lay down my life for you. Now, Paul understood that that's not how that works, right? He can offer himself as a substitute for his kinsmen because that had already been done, hadn't it? Um, People will often point out the fact that uh, Paul is following in the footsteps of Moses, who did this very same thing. Moses, for his people, in Exodus 32, 32, after he came down, he found and discovered the golden calf, and God poured out his wrath on, on Israel then. Moses cried out to God, and he said, But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, blot me out from your book which you have written. So Moses was kind of interceding in that same respect, saying, like, spare them and, and take me instead. But we know, just as Paul knew, that ultimately Christ is the only propitiation, right? Remind me what propitiation is. We talked about it last week. What does that word propitiation mean? It's a satisfactory payment, right? Jesus is the only satisfactory payment. Moses wouldn't do. Paul couldn't do, even though they were willing. Jesus is the one who could offer himself as that, that satisfactory substitute, uh, Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, whoever is hung on a tree, he is cursed. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ is that substitute. Um, but Paul was just expressing his love for his kinsmen, his love for his brother. Uh, because being an apostle to the Gentiles, he was seen as kind of a traitor to the Jews. People would look at him and say um, that he is, he's moved on from the Jew and he's moved to the Gentile. Uh, real quickly, let's turn to Acts 21. Acts 21, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. This is Paul when he's going to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. He says, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the others who were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So we see there in, in verse 21 that there were tens of thousands, maybe verse 20, yeah, 20, that there were many thousands among the Jews who had believed and they were zealous for the law. And this was the beginning of the church, the start of the church, all these Jews who were there and they were faithful and they were just realizing and hearing now for the first time that Paul had gone out to the Gentiles and they realized their response isn't going to be good because they're hearing that you're telling people to forsake Moses, which he wasn't. And so they were coming up with a plan. How can we uh, stop their, their anger from boiling over against you? And so Paul was perceived as a traitor to the Jews, as somebody who loved the Gentiles, and he's coming here now in Romans 9, he's saying, no, I, I love you guys, and I'm telling you the truth, that these promises that God made 
are for you. That you guys, being Jews, you have uh, the, the great blessing, the great advantage of the law and the covenants that have been given to you, the promises that have been given to you, of the fathers who have gone before you, of Christ who is a Messiah who has come up from amongst the, the Jewish people. And in fact, I'm willing to, to lay down my life for your sake. So he's trying to plead with them, let them know that God is faithful. He has not turned his back on you. And um, people often, let's turn back to Romans 9 real quick. People often want to try to say that Romans 9 is just parenthetical, that it doesn't really fit in here and that they should just jump from chapter 8 to chapter 12. And I guess you can logically maybe see that because chapter 8 finishes with this high hope of we have this hope in Christ, um, we have this assurance of our salvation, and then chapter 12 starts off and says, um, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to offer your bodies and to live in this way. But uh, J. Vernon McGee said that chapters 9 through 11 can no more be removed than you can take out the middle section of the Mississippi River without causing havoc. Um, so it was put there very specifically. God wanted to make sure that his promises were made clear to Israel, that they knew that it was for them. And um, just getting a head start on next week, verse 6 starts off by saying, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And so that's what Paul has tried to communicate to them and is going to try to communicate to them throughout these next three chapters, that God has not failed. Don't think that these promises made to you, these covenants that God has made, are going to fail. God is faithful and he will come through and he will prove himself to be faithful and he's going to try to tie in and, and help us make sense of how all of that is going to work in the next three chapters. So, uh, if you haven't read through those chapters, you should probably try to read through them at least once a week while we're in them because they are very deep and bring your thoughts and your questions with you and we'll try to tackle them together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth for the veracity of your word, we thank you for your character, that you are, in fact, a faithful God who will um, come through on all of your promises, that you are not a God who has failed. God, we thank you for your work of salvation in our lives. We pray for the same in the lives of those that we know and love and rub shoulders with, that you would use us to boldly proclaim your truth to them. Pray this in your name.